and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Religious Liberty and Education series. Today, I'm grateful to be joined by Dr. Kevin Vallier, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He is the author of a chapter in a book titled Religious Liberty and Education, A Case Study of Yeshivas versus New York, of which I am co-editor. Dr. Vallier's chapter is called A Defense of Yeshiva Autonomy, which is the subject of today's conversation. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure, and it's a pleasure working with you and reading your chapter. I learned so much from it, and it really, it's a very thought-provoking chapter, as I, I'm sure that our listeners will find, especially if they go buy the book and read the whole thing. But Yes, and it's uh, concise. It's only 12 pages. Yes, it is, it, is, it is a very concise chapter. There's a lot packed in there, although it's very readable. You open the chapter by noting that there used to be a broad consensus in favor of religious liberty, but that in recent years, this consensus has begun to erode. And actually, that some quarters, previous approval has shifted to hostility. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But you argue that the earlier consensus is worth defending. So uh, That's right. Why? That's right. So um, just to get the, the dates right, in the 80s, there was a lot of hostility to certain kinds of religious liberty on the right, particularly having to do with things like drug use and, in some case, exemptions for prisoners. And... Under after employment division B Smith was handed down, where there were some restrictions on religious liberty, the details of which are, you know, maybe your listeners may be familiar, there was a pretty big legislative movement to pass this bill called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is a pretty substantial protection of religious liberty. And the Supreme Court understands as a kind of super statute. You know, it's not a it's not a constitutional amendment, but it governs a great deal of other laws. And it was passed by overwhelming majorities in the House and the Senate in 1993. It could not be passed today. It could not be passed today because it probably requires, on a reasonable reading of it, lots of religious exemptions from certain kinds of laws supported by the LGBT movement. So it would allow, probably, exemptions for wedding vendors who do not want to serve LGBT weddings and a variety of other things like exemptions from paying for contraception. So now because, and I, I see it this way, hopefully this isn't too cynical to your listeners, but when progressives were less in power in the culture, they tended to support liberty, but it has become more powerful. They became concerned to limit it more. Between gay marriage and Obamacare, things shifted in a really big way. It also matters in New York City that the population of religiously conservative Jews in the Reddy in particular has grown very, very quickly. And it seems like the attitude towards this group has seems to have shifted very dramatically in New York State. I don't know if they were ever especially tolerant early on, but particularly with COVID and uh, Mayor de Blasio just being so hostile, you get a really vivid example of how the consensus has changed, at least as I understand it. Yeah, I mean, certainly, as I just broadly speaking, there tends to be a, I think it's a very human phenomenon, that groups that are out of power argue for pluralism, and groups that are in power have a more universal conception of the good. Yes. Um, and that, that so I think, seems to be the case here. I would note, actually, that in the, the New York case specifically, yes, I do think there has been a recent major uptick in hostility toward the Haredi community. And... It is worth noting that right now, among Jews in New York, they used to be a very tiny percent of the population. 
But now Orthodox Jews more broadly, which includes the Haredi or what's sometimes called ultra-Orthodox community, as well as more what are called modern Orthodox Jews, more than half of children under the age of 18 among Jews are in one of the Orthodox camps. So that, that has been a demographic shift. Although that said, I mean, you can go all the way back to the 40s and 50s, and there were groups that were trying to exercise control over how the Orthodox schools run. And they failed then, and the, the issue sort of lied dormant. We're returning to form. But we are returning, yes, as these things uh, tend to do. But so you argue that, again, we should defend this earlier consensus mm-hmm. about religious liberty. The book does explore this specific case, which is you know, the New York Department of Education trying to exercise greater authority and oversight over the curriculum of Haredi Orthodox Jewish schools, which are known as yeshivas. But before we get into the specifics of the case, I'd like to take a step back and let's just look more broadly at some of the key issues that are raised by the case. So in particular, should the government ever have the authority to override the wishes of parents or religious communities to ensure that those children receive a certain minimum level of education? If so, you know, when and how can the government legitimately exercise this authority? You propose a three-pronged test to answer mm-hmm. these questions. So why don't you just broadly sketch out the test overall, and then we can more closely examine each prong. Yeah. So, I mean, the main idea is we're trying to figure out and apply a specific case of how to justify state coercion and authority. So it, it's really the use of violent force, the threat of it is what we're trying to figure out when it can be justified. And I've developed broader theory of this, but the way that it applies in the yeshiva case comes from a general approach to education that I, I've defended. And so what I say is that the state can intervene into private religious school education under three conditions. First, when the educational interests of children are significantly threatened. Second, when the intervention is the least coercive, effective means to protect educational interests. And three, when the government has demonstrated its ability to secure the educational interests of children better than the religious schools themselves, they all have to be met. Okay, can the first one, you know, mate, you, you listen to the first condition, you think, oh, yeah, children have an interest in being educated, they should have a lot of education. If those things are threatened, well, then there should be intervention. But there's two restrictions, right? It has to be the least coercive means that would work. And it has to be balanced against a robust understanding of government failure when it intervenes. Underlying this three-prong test is the presumption against state coercion. That's right. Which you don't argue for in the chapter itself. You just sort of take this as a given. That's right. Uh, maybe, you could, maybe you can explain why you take it as a given and what this means. And my other or broader research, I think that effectively the way that most societies have operated, and I think what's intuitive to most people, is that when people propose to interfere with or coerce another person, that calls out for a reason. Why are you messing with me? Right. Whereas if you aren't coercing, if you're just sort of not interfering, the same kind of call is not appropriate. So my late teacher, Jerry Gauss, and one of his teachers, Stanley Ben, developed this idea of, you imagine Alan and Betty are on a beach, and Betty's just, you know, playing with, with little pebbles on the beach. She's just doing her own thing. And Alan comes in and starts to mess with Betty. And here, the justificatory situation is pretty clear. Betty's just splitting pebbles or whatever. Alan is intervening. So there's a question, right? Why can Alan intervene? 
So the idea is that even within our kind of own practice of moral reasoning is built this idea that if you're going to mess with somebody, the burden of proof is on you. Now, different cultures have differed radically over what would meet the burden. And liberal societies have say it has a higher burden. But the idea that there is a burden of proof on the coercer, I think, is a very deep part of human morality. So you're not saying that there is no role for the government, but that the burden of proof essentially is on the government to explain why it is intervening. Right. Uh, the burden is not on the parents to say why the government should not intervene. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So what considerations meet this presumption against coercion more broadly? Not just talking about education, but, but things like you know, nutrition, health, shelter, etc. I have a kind of, I'll try to avoid too much of the details of my view, but effectively to justify coercion, it has to be based on some principle or consideration or value that the person coerced can grasp or see the point of. And so in this case, when we're justifying coercion, I can't coerce you on the basis of, of my faith at differing very much from yours. But there are certain shared understandings of what's good for people and what people's interests are that everyone can sort of recognize as valid. Now, there's huge amounts of disagreement about these interests, particularly, though, how they're weighted against each other. And there's lots of agreement that, you know, food, health care, those things are, are fine. So if they're basic interests, interests that any kind of reasonable person can see, then if state intervention can secure those goods better than non-intervention, then it can be justified to protect those vital interests, especially of children, because children can't make their own decisions. So, you know, if you're talking about adults, the conditions for intervening are higher because the adult can do a lot to secure those goods themselves. That's why you, coercion can be easier to justify in the case of children. Although it's also the case that the barrier of parents' rights plays a big role. Yeah, and, and on that point, you draw a distinction between the educational interest yeah. of children and the educating interest right. of parents and community. So what's the difference and how does it matter in this context? Well, children have an interest in knowing a great deal about the world, and it benefits them in all kinds of ways. There's both great value in itself, but also instrumental value in being able to take on certain kinds of jobs or careers. So those are the children's educational interests. The educating interests are the interests that parents and communities have in being able to pass on their values. In fact, this is the thing that parents and communities often care about more than anything else if they're decent parents and decent communities. What they want to do is they have a view of the world, provides and orients their life with meaning and value. And having the authority to pass that on from generation to generation is about as deeply ingrained of a feature of human communities going back for probably tens of thousands of years insofar as people were actually developing value systems. So I think that's a clear and weighty interest, but they can conflict, right? Um, you may say, well, maybe my values are best passed on if I keep my kids in the dark, right? Maybe I make sure that they can't function outside the community. In that case, you'd have a conflict between the educating educational interests and that's essentially what Yefed is accusing sort of many of the yeshivas of doing. So the educational interests, that's what those are, educating interests, and then the possibility of conflict between the two. And to clarify, Yafed is Young Advocates for Fair Education. This is a group of mostly ex-Haredi adults who are arguing that they don't believe they were provided a sufficiently robust secular education and so want the state to intervene 
to force the Haredi yeshivas to provide a certain level of education. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Yeah. But first, still on this question, it raises the question of, okay, so children have a certain educational interest that the government has a legitimate, maybe even a compelling interest in providing. Or not producing. Sorry, right? not producing, but making sure that they have at least have access to, right? So the right. question then becomes, what is the minimum education that children are owed and who gets to decide? Yeah, so the hope is that some kind of liberal democratic procedure can be used if there's deep disagreement. However, I do think there are some things that are pretty clear. One, the minimum educational interest in a liberal society, in a free society, is that people know their basic rights and liberties. So they know that there's no legal punishment. They're not going to go to jail or anything like that if they leave. So the fundamental issues that people have these rights. There's also, I think, a fundamental interest in just being able to navigate the social world. So I think, you know, as a kind of classical liberal, I think freedom of exit, the ability to leave an institution, is a lot more important and effective than a vote. All right. And um, as and I think, you know, people should be able to form robust, thick communities around their own values, but they can't raise people to think that they can't ever exit or maybe that, you know, something absurdly radical, like there is no world outside of the community or something. Right. So that would cut them off too much. And I do think there are some basic linguistic requirements. Though that is something I waffled a bit about as I was developing the paper, you know, I think that is English language in America required, or is it enough for them to have developed capacities for language and then what they pick up on their own? What I'm really worried about with communities, and I'm more much worried about the state and the private communities, is if there was a private community that just systematically deceived children to keep them in the community through, you know, violence and brainwashing. That's, that's a cult, right? So, and the state does have an interest in removing children from the Branch Davidians, right? So that's, for me, the minimum. Okay. Let's dwell on that language question, though, for a yeah. second, right? Yeah. Language is obviously important. To, it's necessary yep. for human communication. Every that's child right. needs it. There's a very clear interest in having children have acquired some minimal level of a language. And the question becomes, does it have to be the dominant language? And, and if yeah. so, does that mean the dominant language of the nation? Does it suffice if it's the dominant language of the local community? How large does that community have to be? I mean, if the community is defined as uh, 10 people, that person really does not have access to the wider world. So how do we sift these things out? I think that all we can do and hope to do is to appeal to conventions the same way that we have to draw arbitrary lines and speed limits, right? I don't think morality itself contains determinate answers to these questions. So we just, we have to determine conventions that work. So just to try to do a little work in that direction, one thought is, well, what's the minimum linguistic mastery that they need to know their basic rights and to navigate outside of their communities if it's particularly threatening in some way? And the answer is not a huge amount, really, because they can understand their rights through their own language in many cases. And it's also the case that if you are in a large metropolitan area, um, you're invariably going to pick up, you know, a lot of the basics in order to sort of figure things out. But also, I mean, the Jewish community is sufficiently large and diverse in New York City that in those cases, you know, ready Jews may be able to navigate themselves without knowing much English. So I think it's hard to say in any concrete 
way, but you try to estimate what would be required for them to grasp their basic rights and to be able to exercise them. Let's turn now to the case itself then. So do you believe that the state of New York is justified in interfering with the education of Haredi families at all? And if so, to what extent? In principle, it could be. It isn't currently, but in principle, it could be. If, for instance, the Haredi yeshivas were, as Yafed describes, or probably actually would need to be a little worse than that, on my view, because of how sort of liberal the view is, it would need to be the case that the state of New York, uh, New York City, could effectively intervene to ensure that these schools are equipping children with the knowledge that they need to know their basic rights, both against their communities, but also against the government too. So that's, cause that's often much more important <laughs> to know. Um, and I think in a modern Jewish history, obviously knowing rights against the state is gonna be more important. Um, so that's when they could intervene if the community was not doing the job and they could show through some kind of impartial means that they were not doing that basic job. That would be the condition under which they could intervene at, the, at a minimum. There's also questions about vocation, where if the yeshivas were not giving people any vocation, that would be you know, basically making it impossible for them to acquire a job. That would also be a problem. Now, of course, I don't think the yeshivas are doing this, but that would be the principle in which intervention could be justified. Again, granting that New York State and New York City could actually achieve the goal. All right, so uh, let's say for a second that they were justified in interfering. You say it already fails the first prong of the test and, and yeah. really stop there, but let's say that they actually uh, did meet the first prong of the test and that yeah. some sort of coercion was justified. Yeah. How about the suggestions that Yafid raises? They, they say, well, we should increase the time spent on secular subjects to a minimum of three hours in elementary schools, two and a half in high school, that yeah. uh, they should teach all the state mandated subjects, which it was mm -hmm. about 12 subjects. We're not just talking about yeah. English language arts and math and science. We're, we're also talking about health classes and art classes and a number of yeah. things that, that are in there, which, by the way, I think most people would agree. In this They're kind valuable. Of, it's valuable. about the weight. It's waiting. It's about waiting. But the question yeah. is, the question is, should they be mandatory? And then uh, administering the state test. I mean, do each or any of these meet your three-pronged test? I don't think so. I mean, one difficulty with what Yafed is proposing is that there'd be so many requirements that would effectively greatly dilute the educating and undermine the educating interests of parents. You don't need that much education in secular subjects in order for people to be able to know their basic rights and navigate their social world. And also there's reasonable disagreement about how much to weight those secular subjects vis-a-vis -vis religious subjects, right? So, you know, the Peretti parents are going to think the religious subjects are the most important, right? Whereas Yafed seems to think that they're just kind of subsidiary or at least of equal weight to art classes or something. But that doesn't respect the educating interest because part of the educating interest of parents is to be able to, to determine that weighting of values for their children. So they're essentially, Yafed is being sectarian in the sense of insisting on a reasonably contestable ordering of values in educating children. 
it's also the case that I think that they are underestimating the range of skills. I mean, just, just doing research for this article, the range of skills that kids in these schools are acquiring is staggering. I mean, there's so much more school. I mean, you know, we homeschool my son and I'm reading about this and I'm like, I can't, getting him to do a couple of hours is tough. I mean, at this stage, he doesn't really need it, but they're, they've got knowledge of things and the way the world works and the legal world and all these kinds of things, legal ideas that far outstrip children in New York State. So this is one of the things that blew me away. I thought, okay, you know, what are these, what are these schools? You know, maybe they really are hurting kids. But then I realized how much staggering amount of education they're given, I think. Surely these are people who could teach themselves some English uh, if they didn't have it. The level of linguistic mastery is again, staggering. Right. I mean, so they're speaking Yiddish in their homes and most yeah. of the instruction is in Yiddish, but they are diving into texts that are very arcane and, and hard to parse, written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. Yeah. And so they have to have a certain level of familiarity with at least three languages right. in order to engage with these texts. And as you noted in the paper, I mean, these are very high level texts. These are, you know, I try to make sense right. of them each night, and I have trouble. Yeah, a lot of it. Right. And uh, yeah, more than starting, me. Starting around middle school, they're engaging in a very close reading of these texts. So somebody who is trained to read texts in multiple languages very closely, and then again, you've got just multiple commentators saying that yeah. uh, well, it should be interpreted this way or that way, and then you've got super commentaries on those commentaries. It's an incredibly complex endeavor. So even if they come away and they are lacking a lot of the content that you would get in a, you know, a traditional American school, they have acquired some level of skill and a certain patience with sitting with a text for many hours in a row, contemplating it, arguing over it with your, you know, your study partner and in, in small groups that I think actually would serve them quite well once they go on to uh, college or higher levels of education, uh, mm -hmm. even in the secular context. Yeah, just the, well, the acquisition of basic educational virtues, right? The virtue of being prepared to learn. If you dilute that level of education, you know, parental commitment to that kind of focus could be diminished because they have less value or place less value on it. They think, look, we're being messed with or interfered with. I assume the groups would just try to work around the requirements. <laughs> to throw one a little monkey wrench into your three-pronged test, the test says nothing about public assistance. This issue has been raised in two contexts. Uh, mm -hmm. One is that the schools themselves get some level of public assistance. Mm -hmm. Not a great deal. They don't get any assistance. There's no voucher system or anything yeah. like that. But the schools are receiving, or at least the children at the schools, are receiving assistance when it comes to food. They may get subsidies for transportation, for the security of the building and the, and the adults and children in the building. So should that mean that they are subject to a higher level of instructional control? I doubt it very strongly. I actually am very worried that if you allowed that principle, then the government could simply tempt people with benefits and then bring them under their control. So, and I think this occurs. So the worry is if you accept that principle, receiving public funding for X means control over Y. That cannot be. That principle, if it were consistently applied, would give the government a very powerful tool to get people addicted to them, right? And then to bring them under their control. 
So if it were the case that the yeshiva said, hey, give us public money for our schools, then it's more plausible, right? They're saying, look, we need taxpayer money to educate, and then you're taking the money and educating them in a faith that most of them don't hold. And that, I think, would be kind of the wrong kind of coercion, right? That would be government fund, you know. But if they're funding them to eat, that doesn't mean they get to control education. That's just not a good principle, I think. And what about the second point? And Yafid raises this. And look, there's arguments over the statistics here. But they say that there's a higher level of use of public assistance, welfare benefits and whatnot, among Haredi families vis-a-vis the general population. Mm -hmm. And so that justifies interfering in, in these schools to force them to teach things that, that might make them go into, uh, well, be able to get higher paying jobs. It's actually a question, I mean, for the community, you know, going out there and getting high paying jobs is not a driving value. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the community is, you know, happy with uh, lower paying jobs that allow them more time with their family, more time to study Torah and things like that. So there's that question. But let's, let's say that the question was actually one of access. Let's say that they weren't able to get higher paying jobs. In that case, is there justified coercion? I don't think so either. I think it's a similar issue that you, you get public assistance for one thing and then you lose your liberties over another thing. Now, when they say they receive more, it's a new kind of objection. It's not just that they receive it. It's like, it's unfair. And so here's the argument, really, the best version of the argument is because they receive more, they impose a greater burden on the public. And that requires some sort of amelioration or concession of some kind. But it depends on why there's extra money. Like, is it extra money just because of really good lobbying? Or is it extra money just because there are a lot of kids and a lot of the basic needs need to be met. If it's the second one, then I think, no, that doesn't introduce more control. If it's the first and the community is actively lobbying for public funds and they're not just resisting someone else, restricting their freedom or something like that, right? Then they're lobbying for benefits that are coercively removed from other members of the public. And that could come with certain kinds of constraints. But the mere reception of benefits to, to meet basic interest is not, is not the same. Yeah, the argument is actually usually over, well, they are more likely to receive welfare benefits. They're more likely to be on Medicaid and mm -hmm. things like that. But I think the calculus is actually stacked in that they don't count the foregoing of the public school benefit. Okay, so you, you might have a, a, the Haredi families tend to be quite large, so probably around eight children on average. In New York right now, they're close to $30,000 per pupil that they are foregoing, right? So we're talking about, you know, for a lot of families, about $240,000 worth of public assistance that they are foregoing, but they are oh, getting wow. additional public assistance from Medicaid. Uh, and by the way, it's also worth noting that your qualification for those programs, the income threshold is much higher for families that have lots of children. So more of them qualify even if you were to hold family size constant, they may be earning, let's say, comparable with the rest of the population. But because they have a larger family size, a larger proportion of them are going to qualify for the benefits. So these calculations usually look only at these benefits, and they don't look at the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they are foregoing on the other side when, when they don't go to the public schools. 
And there's also the fact that the parents who are doing the educating in the schools, in many cases, are giving up higher paying jobs. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of costs that are being paid by the community to live their way of life. But particularly, it's not just any old cost that you're pointing to. It's they're foregoing public assistance. And so, yeah, the idea that they're more reliant relative to others, yeah, you'd have to do the full cost benefit analysis to get that claim off the ground. Uh, does, yeah. It does seem to be a gap in their argument. So going forward, if the Department of Education were to approach you and say, you know, Dr. Vallier, how should we proceed with this community? What would your recommendations be? With respect to me, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, doing the homeschooling thing, Ohio requires next to nothing relative to other states and certainly relative to other countries. But I don't mind, you know, a little Zoom exam. I, I know some parents would because they worry about the incentive effects and stuff like that. I myself don't mind a little bit of checking up. But if I were doing a huge amount of religious education and I knew that the authorities were very skeptical of that, then it would be a very different story because I, I wouldn't trust them. I would, I would be suspicious of their reasons because I would think that they're trying to, to harm my ability to pass on my values to my children. So it just depends. I mean, if it's like a, do some math, you know, on a test for 15 minutes and then we'll grade it, like that's fine. But yeah, if, if it's this comprehensive threat and particularly if you think it's a prelude to a greater threat, then yeah, my reaction would be very different. And the state of Ohio doesn't seem in that regard very aggressive, but the federal government would be a very different story. So, and if it was my county, it would be even less big of a deal, right? It's just like, I can leave the county. It would be annoying, but you know, as long as there's, I mean, the more exit you have from the government that rules you, the less morally problematic their requirements are, I think, all else equal. So, you know, but in New York City and New York State, it's such a big state and it's such a big city that, yeah, I would be, and I mean, particularly with its current mayor, with the, you know, flagrant hypocrisy of the enforcement of the COVID restrictions, I wouldn't trust them at all. On the flip side, uh, what sort of advice would you give to uh, families and uh, religious communities that are facing departments of education or, or other governmental authorities that are trying to exercise more control over the content of their education? Well, there has to be first the assessment of the evidence of a problem. So if the state doesn't have independent reason to test and then the complainants come to them, they have to make an assessment of the evidence that meets basic standards of evidence, right? And it turns out the EFED's standards of evidence seem to be quite low. So you can imagine, right, like you had like a huge amount of secret video and like every school and you recorded a random sampling of days, you know, and you compiled this gigantic file and you transcribed everything or something. Now that would obviously be a horrible intrusion of privacy, right? But the point is, you know, the standard of evidence could be met, but the question is whether it has in this case, and I think the answer is no. Our guest today has been Dr. Kevin Vallier, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University. He is the author of a chapter in our book, Religious Liberty and Education, a case study of yeshivas versus New York, titled A Defense of Yeshiva Autonomy. 
Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. Pleasure. Kevin, before we go, I know that you have a book coming out that actually relates very much to the subject that we have discussed today. Why don't you tell our listeners about it? So the book is called Trust in a Polarized Age. It's coming out with Oxford University Press on November 10th. And the big aim of that book is to look at declining trust in government and declining trust in society in the United States and the way I think it's driving political polarization and political polarization is driving it. And I make a case that the institutions of free societies can restore trust and control polarization in the right kind of way. It, it can do so justly. And a big part of what we're talking about is the state of trust between the government and a private religious community. And so I think it would be of interest to your readers. It's a much broader project, but there's a lot of data on uh, how trust is restored, how it's to be understood, and how it relates to institutions, and I have a whole chapter in freedom of association that bears directly on this. So, so readers may find it of interest. So it's 25 bucks through Oxford's website. This has been another edition of Ed Choice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors or activists or just interesting individuals you'd like us to interview for the Religious Liberty and Education series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at edchoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.